Today, I am reading Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson's dissenting opinion of the Supreme Court's decision to end affirmative action in college admissions. In the ruling, Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus President and Fellows of Harvard College, Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan join in dissenting. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone with Ramona Houston, where we zone in on black and brown relations and our journey to empowering our communities. Released on June 29, 2023, the decision is a devastating blow to racial justice in the United States. Justice Brown Jackson makes prolific arguments of why affirmative action is still necessary in higher education. Justice Kentonji Brown Jackson is the first African-American woman and the first former federal public defender to serve on the United States Supreme Court. I hope you are enlightened and inspired by her arguments. See show notes for more information about the decision. As always, please subscribe to the Empowerment Zone podcast. And also make sure you give us a rating on Apple Podcast. Your support will ensure that we continue our journey in empowerment and impact. Thank you. Enjoy the reading. Both sides, race-based gaps exist with respect to health, wealth, and well-being of American citizens. They were created in this distant past, but have indisputably been passed down to the present day through generations. Every moment these gaps persist is a moment in which this great country falls short of actualizing one of its fundamental principles, the self-evident truth that all of us are created equal. Yet today, the court determines that holistic admissions programs like the one that the University of North Carolina, UNC, has operated, consistent with Grutter versus Bollinger, 539 U.S. 306 in 2003, are a problem with respect to achievement of that aspiration. Rather than a viable solution, as has long been evident to historians, sociologists, and policymakers alike. Justice Sotomayor has persuasively established that nothing in the Constitution or Title VI pro prohibits institutions from taking race into account to ensure the racial diversity of admits in higher education. I join her opinion without qualification. I write separately to expound upon the universal benefits of considering race in this context in response to a suggestion that has permeated this legal action from the start. Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, has maintained both subtly and overtly that it is unfair for a college's admissions process to consider race as one factor in a holistic review of its applicants. C-E-G-T-R of Oral Argument 19. This contention blinks both history and reality in ways too numerous to count. But the response is simple. Our country has never been colorblind. Given the lengthy history of state-sponsored race-based preferences in America, to say that anyone is now victimized is 
if a college considers whether that legacy of discrimination has unequally advantaged its applicants, fails to acknowledge the well-documented intergener uh, quote intergenerational transmission of inequality, end quote, that still plagues our citizenry. It is that inequality that admissions programs such as UNC's helps help to address to the benefit of us all. Because the majority's judgment stunts that progress without any basis in law, history, logic, or justice, I dissent. Imagine two college applicants from North Carolina, John and James. Both trace their family's North Carolina roots to the year UNC of UNC's founding in 1789. Both love their state and want great things for its people. Both want to honor their family's legacy by attending the state's flagship educational institution. John, however, would be the seventh generation to graduate from UNC. He is white. James would be the first. He is black. Does the race of these applicants properly play a role in UNC's holistic merits-based admission process? To answer that question, quote, a page of history is worth a volume of logic, end quote. New York Trust Company versus Eisner, 200, 256 U.S. 345-349-1921. Many chapters of America's history appear necessary given the opinions that my colleagues in the majority have issued in this case. Justice Thurgood Marshall recounted the genesis. 350 years ago, the Negro was dragged to this country in chains to be sold in slavery, uprooted from his homeland and thrust into bondage for forced labor. The slave was deprived of all legal rights. It was unlawful to teach him to read. He could be sold away from his family and friends at the whim of his master, and killing or maiming him was not a crime. The system of slavery brutalized and dehumanized both master and slave. Regents of University of California versus Bake, 439 U.S. 265, 387 to 388, 1978. Slavery should have been, and was to many, self-evidently dis dissonant with our avowed founding principles. When the time came to resolve that dissonance, 11 states chose slavery. With the Union's survival at stake, Frederick Douglass noticed, noted, Black Americans in the South, quote, were almost the only reliable friends the nation had, end quote, and Quote, but for their help, the rebels might have succeeded in breaking up the nation, end quote. After the war, Senator John Sherman defended the proposed 14th Amendment in a manner that encapsulated our Reconstruction framers' highest sentiments. Quote, we are bound by every obligation by Black Americans' service on the battlefield, by their hero heroes who are buried in our cause by their patriotism in the hours that tried our country we are bound to protect them and all of their natural rights end quote to uphold that promise the framers repudiated this court's holding in dred scott versus sanford 19 HOW 393-1857 by crafting reconstruction amendments and associated legislation 
that transformed our constitution and society. Even after this second founding, when the need to right historical wrongs should have been clear beyond Cavill, our opponents insisted that vindicating equality in this manner slighted white Americans. So when the Reconstruction Congress passed a bill to secure all citizens the same civil rights as, in, as enjoyed by white citizens, 14 stat, Statute 27, President Andrew Johnson vetoed it because it, quote, discriminated in favor of the Negro. That attitude and the nation's associated retreat from Reconstruction made prophecy out of Congressman's, Congressman Thaddeus Stevens' fear that, quote, those states will all keep up the, this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen, end quote. And this court facilitated that retrenchment. Not just in Plessy versus Ferguson, 163 U.S. 537, 1896, but in almost every instance, the court has chosen to restrict the scope of the second founding, end quote. Thus, 13 years pre-Plessy in the civil rights cases, 109 U.S. 3, 1883, our predecessors on the court invalidated Congress's attempt to enforce the Reconstruction Amendments via the Civil Rights Act of 1875, lecturing that, quote, there must be some stage when Black Americans take the rank of a more a mere citizen and cease to be the specific favorite of the laws, end quote, ID at 25. But Justice Harlan knew better. He responded, quote, what the nation through Congress has sought to accomplish in reference to Black people is what had already been done in every state of the Union for the white race, to secure and protect rights belonging to them as freemen and citizens, nothing more. End quote. ID at 61, dissenting opinion. Justice Harlan dissented alone, and the betrayal that this court enabled had concrete effects. Enslaved Black people had built great wealth, but only for enslavers. No surprise then that freedmen leapt at the chance to control their own labor and to build their own financial security. Still, white Southerners often quote, simply refused to sell land to Blacks, end quote, even when the not selling was economically foolish. To bolster private exclusion, states sometimes pass laws forbidding such sales. The inability to build wealth through that most, Ameri that most American of means forced Black people into sharecropping cropping roles, where they somehow always tended to find themselves in debt to the landowner when the growing season closed with no hope of recourse against the ever-present cooking of the books. Sharecropping is but one example of race-linked obstacles that the law and private parties lay down to hinder the progress and prosperity of Black people. Vagrancy laws criminalized, criminalized free Black men who failed to work for white landlords. Many states barred freedmen from hunting or fishing to ensure that they could not live without entering de facto reenslavement as sharecroppers. A cornucopia of laws banning hitchhiking, 
prohibiting, encouraging a laborer to leave his employer, and penalizing those who prompted Black Southerners to migrate northward ensured that Black people could not freely seek better lives elsewhere. And when status statutes did not ensure compliance, state-sanctioned and private violence did. Thus, emerging Jim Crow, a system that was, as much as anything else, a comprehensive scheme of economic exploitation to replace the Black codes, which themselves had replaced slavery's form of comprehensive economic exploitation. Meanwhile, as Jim Crow ossified, the federal uh, government was giving away land on the western frontier and with it, the uh, quote, the opportunity for upward mobility and a more secure future, end quote, over the 1862 Homestead Act's three-quarter century tenure. Black people were exceedingly unlikely to be allowed to share in these benefits, which by one calculation may have advantaged approximately 46 million Americans living today. Despite these barriers, Black people persisted. Their so-called Great Migration Northward accelerated during the and after the First World War. Like clockwork, American citizens responded with racially exclusionary zoning and similar policies. As a result, Black migrants had to pay disproportionately higher prices for disproportionately subpar housing. Nor did migration make it more likely for Black people to access home ownership as banks would not lend to Black people. And in the, in the rare cases, black banks would fund home loans, exorbit, exorbitant interest rates were charged. With Black people still locked out of the Homestead Act give, giveaway, it is no surprise that when the Great Depression arrived, race-based wealth, health, and opportunity gaps were the norm. Federal and state governments' selective intervention further exacerbated the disparities. Consider, for example, the Federal Home Owners Loan Corporation, HOLC, created in 1933. HOLC purchased mortgages threatening with foreclosure and issued new amortized mortgages in their place. Not only did this mean that recipients of these mortgages could gain equity while paying off the loan, successful full payment would make the recipient a homeowner. Ostensibly, uh, to identify and avoid the riskiest recipients, the HOLC created color-coded maps of every metropolitan area in the nation. Green meant safe, red meant risky. And regardless of class, every neighborhood with Black people earned the red designation. Similarly, consider the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, created in 1934, which insured highly desirable bank mortgages. Eligibility for this insurance required an FHA appraisal of the property to ensure a low default risk. But nationwide, it was FHA's established policy to provide no guarantees for mortgages to African-Americans or to whites who might lease to African-Americans, irrespective of credit worthiness. No surprise then that between 1934 and 1968, 90%, 98% of FHA loans went to white Americans, 
with whole cities, ones that had disproportionately large numbers of Black people due to housing segregation, sometimes being deemed ineligible for FHA intervention on racial grounds. The Veterans Administration operated similarly. One more example, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board quote, chartered, insured, and regulated savings and loan associations from early from the early years of the New Deal, end quote. But it did not, quote, it did, quote, not oppose the denial of mortgages to African-Americans until 1961, end quote, and even then opposed discrimination ineffectively. The upshot of all of this is that due to government policy choices, quote, in the suburban shaping years between 1930 and 1960, fewer than 1% of all mortgages in the nation were issued to African-Americans, end quote. Thus, based on their race, Black people were, quote, locked out of the greatest mass-based opportunity for wealth accumulation in American history, end quote. For present purposes, it purposes, it is, necess it is significant that in so excluding Black people, government policies affirmatively operated, one could say, affirmatively acted to dole out preferences to those who, if nothing else, were not Black. Those past preferences carried forward and are reinforced today by, among other things, the benefits that flow to homeowners and to the holders of other forms of capital that are hard to obtain unless one already has assets. This discussion of how existing gaps were formed is merely illustrative, not exhaustive. I will pass over Congress's repeated crafting of family, worker, and retiree pro protection legislation to channel benefits to white people, thereby excluding Black Americans from what was otherwise, quote, a revolution in the status of most working Americans, end quote. I will also skip how the GI Bill's, quote, creation of middle-class America by giving $95 billion to veterans and their families between 1944 and 1971 was, quote, deliberately designed to accommodate Jim Crow, end quote. So too will I bypass how Black people were prevented from partaking in the consumer credit market, a market that helped white people who could access it build and protect wealth. Nor will I, nor will time and space permit my elaborating how local officials' racial hostility meant that even those benefits that Black people could formally obtain were unequally distributed among, along racial lines. And I could not possibly discuss every way in which, in light of this history, facially race-blind policies still work race-based harms today e.g. racially dis dis disparate tax system treatment, this proportionate location of toxic waste facilities in Black communities, or the deliberate action of governments at all levels in designing interstate highways to bisect and segregate Black urban communities. The point is this, given our history, the origin of persistent race-linked gaps should be no mystery. It has never been a deficiency of Black Americans' desire or ability to, in Frederick Douglass's words, quote, stand on their own legs, end quote. Whether 
It was always simply that Justice Harlan recognized 140 years ago the persistence and pernicious denial of, quote, what had already been done in every state of the union for the white race, end quote. Civil Rights Cases 109 U.S. AT61 Dissenting Opinion. History speaks. In some form, it can be heard forever. The race-based gaps that first developed centuries ago are echoes from the past that still exist today. By all accounts, they are still stark. Start with wealth and income. Just four years ago, in 2019, Black families' median wealth was approximately $24,000. For white family, that number was approximately eight times as much, $188,000. These wealth disparities, quote, exist at every income and educational level. So, quote, on average, white families with college degrees have over $300,000 more wealth than Black people's with college degrees, end quote. This disparity has also accelerated over time from a roughly $40,000 gap between white and black households median net worth in 1993 to roughly $135,000 gap in 2019. Median income numbers from 2019 tell the same story, 76057 for dollars for white households and $98,174,000 for Asian households, $56,113 for Latino households, and $45,438 for Black households. These financial gaps are unsurprising in light of the link between home ownership and wealth. Today, as was true 50 years ago, Black home ownership still trails white home ownership by approximately 25 percentage points. Moreover, Black Americans' homes relative to white Americans constitute a greater percentage of household wealth, yet tend to be worth less, are subject to higher effective property taxes, and generally lost more value in the Great Recession. From those markers of social and financial unwellness, flow others. In most state flagship higher educational institutions, the percentage of Black undergrads is lower than the percentage of Black high school graduates in that state. Black Americans in their late 20s are about half as likely as their white counterparts to have college degrees. And because lower family income and wealth force students to borrow more, these Black students who do graduate from college find themselves four years out with about 50,000 in student debt, nearly twice as much as their white counterparts, as their white compatriots. As for post-secondary professional arenas, despite being 13% of the population, Black people make up only about 5% of lawyers. Such disparity also appears in the business realm. Of the roughly 1,800 chief executive officers who have appeared on the well-known Fortune 500 list, fewer than 25 have been Black. As of 2022, only six are Black. Furthermore, as the COVID-19 pandemic raged, Black-owned small businesses failed at dramatically higher rates than white-owned small businesses, particularly due to the disproportionate denial of forgivable loans needed to forgive the economic downturn. Health gaps track financial ones. 
When tested, black children have blood lead levels that are twice the rate of white children. Quote, irreversible, end quote, contamination working irremedial harm on developing brains. Black and Latino children with heart conditions are more likely to die than their white counterparts. Race-linked mortality rates disproportionately has also persisted and is highest among infants. So too, for adults, Black men are twice as likely to die from prostate cancers at, at cancer as white men and have lower five-year cancer survival rates. Uterine cancer has spiked in recent years among all women, but has spiked highest for Black women who die of uterine cancer at nearly twice the rate of any other racial, or ethnic group. Black mothers are up to four times more likely than white mothers to die as a result of childbirth. And COVID killed Black Americans at higher rates than white Americans. Quote, across the board, Black Americans experience the highest rates of obesity, hypertension, maternal maternal mortality, infant mortality, stroke, and asthma, end quote. These and other disparities the predictable result of opportunity disparities lead to at least 50,000 excess deaths a year for Black Americans vis-a-vis white Americans. That is 80 million excess years of life lost from just 1999 through 2020. Amakai tell us that race-linked health inequalities pervade nearly every index of human health, end quote, resulting in, uh, quote, in an overall reduced life expectancy for racial and ethnic minorities that cannot be explained by genetics, end quote. Meanwhile, tying health and wealth together, while she lays dying, the typical Black American, quote, pays more for medical care and incur more medical debt, end quote. We return to John and James now with history in hand. It is hardly John's fault that he is the seventh generation to graduate from UNC. UNC should permit him to honor that legacy. Neither, however, was it James or his family's fault that he would be first. And UNC ought to be able to consider why. Most likely seven generations ago, when John's family was building its knowledge base and wealth potential on the university's campus, James' family was enslaved and laboring in North Carolina's fields. Six generations ago, the North Carolina Redeemers aimed to nullify the results of the Civil War through terror and violence, marauding in hopes of excluding all who look like James from equal citizenship. Five generations ago, the North Carolina red shirts finished the job. Four and three generations ago, Jim Crow was so entrenched in the state of North Carolina that UNC, quote, enforced its own Jim Crow regulations, end quote. Two generations ago, North Carolina's governor still railed against, quote, integration for integration's sake, end quote, and UNC's black uh, UNC's black enrollment was minuscule. So, at bare minimum, one generation ago, James' family was six generations behind because of their race, making John, John six generations ahead. These stories are not, ev- uh, not every student's story, but they are many students' stories. 
to demand that colleges ignore race in today's admissions practices and thus disregard the fact that racial disparities may have mattered for where some applicants find themselves today is not only an affront to the dignity of those students for whom race matters. It also condemns our society to never escape the past that explains how and why race matters to the very concept of who merits admission. Permitting, not requiring, colleges like UNC to assess merit fully without blinders on plainly advances, not thwarts, the 14th Amendment's core promise. UNC considers race as one of the many factors in order to best assess the entire unique import of John's and James' individual lives and inheritances on an equal basis. Doing so involves knowledge, not ignoring, the seven generations worth of historical privileges and disadvantages that each of these applicants was born with when his own life's journey started a mere 18 years ago. Recognizing all of this, UNC has developed a holistic review process to evaluate applicants for admission. Students must submit standardized test scores and other conventional information, but applicants are not required to submit demographic information like gender and race. UNC considers whatever information each applicant submits using a non-exhaustive list of 40 criteria grouped into eight categories quote, academic performance, academic program, standardized testing, extracurricular activities, special talent, essay criteria, background, and personal criteria, end quote. Drawing on those 40 criteria, a UNC staff member evaluated John and James would consider respect to each, his engagement outside of the classroom, quote, engagement outside of the classroom, persistence of commitment, demonstrated capacity for leadership, contributions to family, school, and community, work history, and his unique or unusual interest, end quote. Relevant, too, would be his, quote, relative advantage or disadvantage, as indicated by family income level, education history of family members, impact of parents, guardians in the home, or formal education environment, experience of growing up in rural or center city locations, and his status as a child or stepchild of Carolina alumni, end quote. The list goes on. The process is holistic through and through. So where does race come in? According to UNC's admissions policy document, reviewers may also consider, quote, the race or ethnicity of any student, quote, if that information is provided in light of UNC's interest in diversity. And yes, quote, the race or ethnicity of any student may or may not receive a plus in the evaluation process depending on the individual circumstances revealed in the student's application, end quote. Stephen Farmer, the head of UNC's Office of Undergraduate Admissions, confirmed at trial under oath that UNC's admissions process operates in this fashion. Thus, to be clear, every student who chooses to disclose his or his race, it or her race, is eligible for such race-linked plus, just as any student who chooses to disclose his or her unusual interest can be credited for what that interest might add to UNC. The record supports no in, in, intimation to the contrary. Eligibility is just that, 
A plus is never automatically awarded, never considered in numerical terms, and never automatically results in an offer of admissions. There are no race-based quotas in UNC's holistic review process. In fact, during the admission cycle, the school prevents anyone who knows the overall racial makeup of the admitted student pool from reading any applications. More than that, every application is also eligible for a diversity link plus beyond race more generally. And notably, UNC understands diversity broadly, including, quote, socioeconomic status, first-generation college students, political benefits, religious benefits, diversity of thoughts, experiences, ideas, and talents, end quote. A plus by its nature can certainly matter to an admissions case, but make no mistake, when an applicant chooses to disclose his or her race, UNC treats that aspect of identity on par with other aspects of applicants' identity that affect who they are, just like, say, where one grew up or medical challenges one has faced. And then race is considered alongside any other factor that sheds light on what attributes applicants will bring to the campus and whether they are likely to excel once there. A reader of today's majority opinion could be forgiven for misunderstanding how UNC's program really works and for missing that under UNC's holistic review process, a white student could receive a diversity plus while a black student may not. UNC does not do all of this to provide handouts to either John or James. It does this to ascertain who among who among its tens of thousands of applicants has the capacity to take full advantage of the opportunity to attend and contribute to this prestigious university and thus merits admission. And UNC has concluded that ferreting this out requires understanding the full person, which means taking seriously not just SAT scores or whether the applicant plays trump the trumpet, but also any way in which the applicant's race-linked experience bears on the on his capacity and merit. In this way, UNC UNC is able to value what it means for James whose ancestors received no race-based advantages to make himself competitive for admission to a black ship school nevertheless. Moreover, recognizing this aspect, this aspect of James' story does not preclude UNC from valuing John's legacy or any obstacles that his story reflects. So to repeat, UNC's program permits but does not require admissions officers to value both John's and James' love for their state, their high school's rigor, and whether either has overcome obstacles that are indicative of their persistence of commitment. It permits but does not require them to value John's identity as a child of UNC alumni or perhaps if things had turned out differently as a first-generation white student from Appalachia whose family struggled to make ends meet during the Great Recession. And it permits, but does not require, them to value James' race, not in, in the abstract, but as an element of who he is, no less than his love for his state, his high school courses, and the obstacles he has overcome. Understood properly, then, SFFA 
caricatures as an unfair race-based preferences cashes out in a holistic system to a personalized assessment of the advantages and disadvantages that every applicant might have received by accident of birth plus all that has happened to them since. It ensures a full accounting of everything that bears on the individual's resilience and likelihood of enhancing UNC's campus. It also forecasts his potential for entering the wider world upon graduation and making a meaningful contribution to the larger collective societal goal that the Equal Protection Clause embodies. It's guaranteed guaranteed that the United States of America offers genuinely equal treatment to every person regardless of race. Furthermore, and importantly, the fact that UNC's holistic process ensures a full accounting makes it far from clear that any particular applicant of color will finish ahead of any particular non-minority applicant. For example, as the district court found, a higher percentage of the most academically excellent in-state Black candidates, as FFA's expert defied academic excellence, were denied admission than similar, similarly qualified white and Asian American applicants. That, if nothing else, is indicative of a genuinely holistic process. It is evident that both in theory and in practice, UNC recognizes that race, like any other aspect of a person, may bear on what, where both John and James start the admissions relay, but will not fully determine whether either eventually crosses the finish line. The majority seems to think that race blindness solves the problem of race-based disadvantage. But the irony is that requiring colleges to ignore the initial race-linked opportunity gap between applicants like John and James would inevitably widen that gap, not narrow it. It will delay the day that every American has an equal opportunity to thrive, regardless of race. SFA SFFA similarly asked us to consider how much longer UNC will be able to justify considering race in its admissions process. Whatever the answer to that question was yesterday, today's decision will undoubtedly extend the duration of our country's need for such race consciousness because the justification for admissions programs that account for race is inseparable from the race link gaps in health, wealth, and well-being that still exist in our society, the closure of which today's decision will forestall. To be sure, while the gaps are stubborn and pernicious, Black people and other minorities have genuinely, generally been doing better, but those improvements have only been made possible because institutions like UNC have been willing to grapple forthrightly with the burdens of history. SFFA's complaint about the indefinite use of race-conscious admissions program then is a non-secretur. These programs respond to deep-rooted, objectively measurable problems. Their definitions, definite end will be when we succeed together in solving these problems. Accordingly, while there are many per perversities of today's judgment, the majority's failure to recognize that programs like UNC's carry with them the seeds of their own destruction is surely one of them. The ultimate goal of recognizing James' full story and potential 
potentially admitting him to UNC is to give him the necessary tools to contribute to the closing of equity gaps discussed in part one, supra, so that he, his progeny, and therefore all Americans can compete without race mattering in the future. That intergenerational project is undeniably worth a worthy one. In addition, and notably, that end is not fully achieved because James is admitted. Schools properly care about preventing racial isolation on campus because research shows that it matters for students' ability to learn and succeed while in college if they live and work with at least some other people who look like them and are likely to have similar experiences related to that shared characteristic. Equally critical, UNC, UNC's program ensures that students who don't share the same stories, like John and James, will interact in classes and on campus and will thereby come to understand each other's stories, which Amica tell us improves cognitive abilities and critical thinking skills, reduces prejudice, and better prepares students for postgraduate life. Beyond campus, the diversity that UNC pursues for the betterment of its students and society is not a trendy slogan. It saves lives. For marginalized communities in North Carolina, it is critically important that UNC and other institutions produce highly educated professionals of color. Research shows that Black physicians are more likely to accurately assess Black patients' pain tolerance and treat them accordingly, including, for example, prescribing them appropriate amounts of pain medication. For high-risk Black newborns, having a Black physician more than doubles the likelihood that the baby will live and not die. Studies also confirm what common sense counsels, closing wealth disparities through programs like UNC's, which beyond diversifying the medical profession, open doors to every sort of opportunity helps address the aforementioned health disparities in the long run as well. Do not miss the point that ensuring a diverse student body in higher education helps everyone, not just those due to the rate to their race, have directly inherited distinct disadvantages with respect to their health, wealth, and well-being. Amakai explain that students of every race will come to have a greater appreciation and understanding of civic virtue, democratic values, and our, and our country's commitment to equality. The larger economic benefits too, when it comes down to the brass tax of dollars and cents, ensuring diversity will, if permitted to work, help save hundreds of billions of dollars annually by conservative estimates. Thus, we should be celebrating the fact that UNC, once a stronghold of Jim Crow, has now come to understand this. This flagship educational institution, a former Confederate state, has embraced its constitutional obligation to afford genuine equal protection to applicants and, by extension, to the broader polity that its students will serve after graduation. Surely that is progress for a university that once engaged in a in the kind of pat, 
patently offensive race-dominated admissions process that the majority decries. With its holistic review process, UNC now treats race as merely one aspect of the applicant's life when race played a totalizing, all-encompassing, and singularly determinative role for applicants like James for most of this country's history. No matter what else was true about him, being Black meant he had no shot at getting in the ultimate race-linked, uneven playing field. Holistic programs like UNC's reflect the reality that Black students have only relatively recently been permitted to get into the admissions game at all. Such programs also reflect universities' clear-eyed optimism that one day race will no longer matter. So much upside. Universal benefits ensue from holistic admissions programs that allow consideration of all factors material to merit, including race, and that thereby facilitate diverse student populations. Once trained, those UNC students who have thrived in the university, the university's diversity learning environment are well equipped to make lasting contributions in a variety of realms and with a variety of colleagues, which in turn will steadily decrease the salience of race for future generations. Fortunately, UNC and other institutions of higher learning are already on this beneficial path. In fact, all they, that they have needed to continue moving this country forward toward full achievement of all our nation's founding promises is for this court to get out of the way and let them do their jobs. To our great detriment, the majority cannot bring it bring itself to do so. The overarching reason the majority gives for becoming an impediment to racial progress, that is, that its own conception of the 14 Amendments Equal Protection Clause leaves it no other option has wholly self-referential, two-dimensional flatness. The majority and concurring opinion rehearsed this court's idealistic vision of racial equality from Brown forward with appropriate lament for past indiscretions, C-E-G-A-N-T-E at 11. But the race-linked gaps that the law aided by this court previously founded and fostered, which indisputably define our present reality, are strangely absent and do not seem to matter. With let them eat cake obviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces, quote, colorblindness for all, end quote, by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life, and having so detached itself from this country's actual past and present experiences, the court has now been lured into interfering with the crucial work that UNC and other institutions of higher learning are doing to solve America's real world problems. No one benefits from ignorance. Although formal race-linked legal barriers are gone, race still matters to the lived experience of all experiences of all Americans in innumerable ways. And today's ruling makes things worse, not better. The best that can be said of the majority's perspective is that it proceeds ostrich-like from the hope that preventing consideration of race will end racism. But if that 
is its motivation. The majority proceeds in vain. If the colleges of this country are required to ignore a thing that matters, it will not just go away. It will take longer for racism to leave us. And ultimately, ignoring race just makes it matter more. The only way out of this morass for all of us is to stare at racial disparity unblinkingly and then do what evidence and experts tell us is required to level the playing field and to march forward together collectively striving to achieve true equality for Americans. It is no small irony that the judgment the majority hands down today will forestall the end of race-based disparities in this country, making the colorblind world the majority wistfully touts much more difficult to accomplish. As the Civil War neared its conclusion, General Williams T. Sherman and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton convened a meeting of Black leaders in Savannah, Georgia. During this meeting, someone asked Garrison Frazier, the group's spokesperson, what, quote, freedom, end quote, meant to him. He answered, quote, placing us where we could reap the fruit of our own labor and take care of ourselves to have land and to turn it and till it by our own labor, end quote. Today's gaps exist because that freedom was denied for longer than it was ever afforded. Therefore, as Justice Sotomayor correctly and aptly explained, UNC's Holistic Review Program pursues a righteous and legitimate, quote, because it is defined by the Constitution itself. The end is the maintenance of freedom, end quote. Jones versus Alfred H. Mayer, Company 392 U.S. 409, 443 to 444, 1968, quoting CONG, Globe 39th Congress, First Session 1118. 1866, Representative Wilson. Viewed from this perspective, beleaguered admissions programs such as UNC's are not pursuing a patently unfair, ends-justified ideal of a multiracial democracy at all. Instead, they are engaging in an earnest effort to secure a more functional one. The admissions rubrics that they have constructed now recognize that an individual's merit, his abilities to succeed in an institute of higher higher learning and ultimately contribute contribute something to our society cannot be fully determined without understanding that individual in full. There are no specific favorites here. UNC has thus built a review process that more accurately assesses merit than most of the admissions programs that have existed since this this country's founding. Moreover, in so doing, universities like UNC create pathways for upward mobility for long-excluded and historically disempowered racial groups. One nation's history more than justifies this course of action, and our present reality indisputably establishes that such programs are still needed for general public good because after centuries of state sanctions and enacted race discrimination, the aforementioned intergenerational race-based gaps in health, wealth, and well-being stubbornly persist. 
Rather than leaving well enough alone, today the majority is having none of it, turning back the clock to a time before the legal arguments and evidence establishing the soundness of UNC's holistic admissions approach existed. The court indulges those who either do not know our nation's history or long to repeat it. Simply put, the race-blind admissions stance the court mandates from this day forward is unmoored from critical real-life circumstances. Thus, the court's meddling not only arrested noble generational project that America's universities are attempting, it also launches, in effect, a, a dismally misinformed sociological experience. experiment. Time will reveal the results. Yet the court's own missteps are now both externally memorial, memorialized and excruciatingly pain, plain. For one thing, based apparently on nothing more than Justice Powell's initial say-so, it drastically discounts the primary reason that racial diversity objectives is excoriates or are needed consigning race-related historical happenings to the court's own analytical dustbin. Also, by latching onto arbitrary timeliness and prof professing insecurity about missing metrics, the court sidesteps unrefuted proof of the compelling benefit of holistic emissions programs that factor in race. Hard to do, for there is plenty simply proceeding as if no such evidence exists. Then ultimately the court surges to vindicate equality, but Don Quixote style, pitifully perceiving itself as the sole vanguard of legal high ground when in reality, its perspective is not constitutionally compelled and will hamper the best judgments of our world-class educational institutions about who they need to bring onto their campuses right now to benefit every American, no matter their race. The court has come to rest on the bottom line conclusion that racial diversity in higher education is only worth potentially preserving insofar as it might be needed to prepare Black Americans and other underrepresented minorities for success in the bunker, not the boardroom, a particularly awkward place to land in light of the history and uh, the history the majority opts to ignore. It would be deeply unfortunate if the Equal Protection Clause actually demanded this perverse, ahistorical, and counterproductive outcome. To impose this result in that clause's name when it requires no such thing, and to thereby obstruct our collective progress toward the full realization of the clause's promises. Promise is truly a tragedy for us all. A special thank you to the incredible team of the Empowerment Zone. Terry Gully, theme song, NADWorks, digital support, and of course, our featured guest, 